This week, PG&E warns of material impact from Campfire. Toys announces settlement with Fung Retailing. Sears unveils revised junior dip terms. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Research weekly podcast where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lang, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. And I'm Connor Skelding. This week, Director of Credit Research Mark Fisher sits down with senior reporter Jim Holloway and distressed debt financial analyst Stephen Opper to discuss some of the more volatile credits post-third quarter earnings, including McDermott and Weatherford. It's Sunday, November 18th. Pacific Gas and Electric Company could face potentially ruinous liabilities if it is found that the utility failed to act reasonably to prevent the most destructive and deadliest fire known in California's history. On Wednesday, PG&E disclosed that campfire originated in the same area and on the same day as a malfunction on a PG&E transmission line. PG&E said, quote, while the cause of the campfire is still under investigation, if the utility's equipment is determined to be the cause, the utility could be subject to significant liability, in excess of insurance coverage that would be expected to have a material impact on PG&E corporations and the utility's financial condition, results of operations, liquidity, and cash flows. Even as PG&E's exposure to losses from campfire remains to be determined, the company is still dealing with the financial impact of the October 2017 California fires, which by some estimates were less destructive than the campfire. PG&E has estimated $2.5 billion in losses from the October 2017 fires and acknowledged that in certain circumstances, losses could exceed $10 billion. The recent SB 901 legislation could shift certain costs for the 2017 fires to ratepayers. According to the law, if it is found that a utility acted reasonably to avoid a wildfire, reasonable recovery costs could be financed and paid back over time by the utility through higher rates for customers. However, the law may only permit securitization through recovery bonds of costs related to the 2017 fires and catastrophic wildfires occurring in 2019 and beyond, and does not address prospects for recovery of potential liabilities for any 2018 fires. This week, the Sears debtors held their second day hearing. Judge Robert Drain avoided holding an evidentiary hearing on the UCC objection to the debtor's global building procedures motion after the parties reached an agreement to incorporate a parallel track for going concern and going out of business sales. However, the court scheduled an evidentiary hearing for Monday, November 19th on Cyrus's objection to the debtor's proposed sale of medium-term notes Series B issued by debtor Sears Roebuck Acceptance Corp., or SRAC. The debtors said in the motion that they want to sell the SRAC notes because they want to take advantage of the, quote, specter of the upcoming CDS auction as it, quote, creates demand for the MTNs and confers a value that is greater than a value derived simply from the collectability of the MTNs and their relative priority in the debtor's capital structure. Judge Drain also granted the two Rule 2004 discovery motions filed separately by the Unsecured Creditors Committee and the Sears Restructuring Subcommittee. On Thursday, Sears provided details in a revised term sheet for its proposed junior dip facility. 
According to the revised term sheet, the facility would be in the form of a secured dip multiple draw term loan facility up to $350 million provided by Great American Capital Partners. The interim amount would be funded in three draws in the following amounts. $75 million for the first draw on the initial closing date, $75 million for the second draw, and $100 million for the third draw. In addition to several fees, including a 3% closing fee and a 1.25% extension fee, the facility would bear interest at L plus 11.5%. Objections were also filed against the debtor's proposed $1.83 billion first lien dip. The UCC says that the facility includes a, quote, extraordinary and improper roll-up of pre-petition claims and should not be approved by the court. An interim dip hearing has been set for November 27th. The Toys R Us debtors saw the Toys Delaware and Jeffrey debtors plan confirmed on Tuesday over the objection of the Toys Asia businesses, which had argued that the plan unfairly treats their shared services ITASA contract. Several intercompany disputes, including shared services, remain under discussion between the Delaware and Taj sides of the business. In a sign of at least one breakthrough with respect to the Taj businesses, the debtors on Tuesday filed a motion for approval of a settlement between the Taj debtors, TRU UK Asia Limited and Fung Retailing Limited, which control 85% and 15% respectively of the joint venture Toys Lab One Holding Limited, Toys Retail Business in Asia. Under the settlement, the Taj debtors will pay Fung $8.25 million in cash in exchange for the parties agreeing to stand down on their disputes and entering into an amendment to the shareholders' agreement. In connection with the resolution, but outside of the documents being approved by the bankruptcy court, Fung Retailing has agreed to purchase from the Taj note holders an additional 6% of the Asia JV's equity at a $900 million valuation, increasing Fung's ownership in the business from 15% to 21%, according to press reports confirmed by Reorg. The settlement is set to be heard on November 29th, which is also the Taj confirmation hearing. In other intercompany dispute news, the parties to the source code dispute between Toys Delaware and the Asia businesses agree to defer closing arguments as settlement talks continue. Lastly, the Toys R Us, Propco One debtors, and Wayne Holdings on Thursday filed a joint Chapter 11 plan and accompanying disclosure statement. The plan structure would allow the company to emerge as, quote, a real estate management company to manage, market, or dispose of their remaining assets outside of Chapter 11. According to the plan and disclosure statement, the, quote, economics of the recovery as described herein reflect initial proposals discussed between the creditors committee and the plan debtors, and the plan debtors continue to negotiate with their stakeholders to finalize the economics of the plan. Propco 1 is the fourth and final of the toys debtors' anticipated plans. On the island of Puerto Rico, tax reform legislation is headed to the desk of Governor Ricardo Rossello after the Puerto Rican Senate and House of Representatives both voted Tuesday night to approve a compromise bill as the legislative session closed for the long holiday recess. Among the measures left pending until the next regular session starts in January were energy regulatory and policy legislation and an administration bill to create a local framework of incentives for investors in Federal Opportunity Zone funds in Puerto Rico. Later in the week, Rossello issued an executive order directing the various department and agency heads to establish a, quote, special payroll 
to issue Christmas bonuses to Commonwealth government workers before December 15th, while the Oversight Board warned the government that Christmas bonuses to Commonwealth employees must count against the certified budget cap on payroll and related spend, the governor said his administration identified a, quote, sufficient budget line to pay them without affecting the objectives of the fiscal plan or the fiscal 2019 budget. On Tuesday, ahead of the COFINA disclosure statement objection deadline, the Bank of New York Mellon, as COFINA bond trustee, Lehman Brothers Holdings Incorporated, and a retail bondholder, filed objections. BNYM argued that the DS contains insufficient information regarding the $332 million to be paid to institutional investors that structured the COFINA settlement and questions why the funds are not being shared by retail bondholders. Lehman argues that the DS, quote, fails to address in any manner that the debtors cannot dispose of its existing senior bonds as contemplated in the plan, quote, without satisfying a contractual obligation to Lehman related to a 2008 agreement between BNYM, Lehman, and the debtor. Other top red stories of the week were, number one, about 40% of Weatherford bondholders working with Millbank PJT after organizational call hosted by Q Investments. P.F. Chang's reports 14.6% year-over-year decline in Q3 consolidated revenue. Adjusted EBITDA shrinks 33.1% year-over-year. And number three, David's bridal prepares for Chapter 11 filing as early as next week. And now, we turn it over to Jim Holloway in Houston, Texas, for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Well, thank you, Connor. Greetings, everybody. It's a big week this week, and I'm, of course, referring to Black Friday, one of the most important days of the year for the United States. The business of this fair land of ours being business, after all. There are a few things to get out of the way first, mostly on Monday, and most of it in court. So on this Monday, November 19th, we have an evidentiary hearing in the Sears MTN matter, a show cause hearing in Albertsons, a settlement hearing related to Azure Midstream and Exco, and hopefully y'all ain't all hearing doubt yet because there's more. In iHeart, there's a hearing related to the exclusivity extension motion. Out of court, we have the early tender and consent deadline for Monotronics. Tuesday, November 20th, there's a Cafina disclosure statement hearing in Puerto Rico. Wednesday, November 21st, an early tender and consent deadline for Bausch, the Canadian pharma company, perhaps better known to some as Valiant Pharmaceuticals, and there's also a consent solicitation expiration for Bristow. Thursday, November 22nd, Thanksgiving Day, and I'd just like to point out as a public service sort of announcement that the first ever Thanksgiving feast was in Virginia in 1622. It was not in Massachusetts or whatever they called it at the time. You know, something that's always puzzled me about it is that those people, meaning the pilgrims, elected to land a flotilla on a part of the continent that was both remarkably cold during the winter and not exactly known then or thereafter for the fecundity of its soil. I actually came across this the other day. Some poor soul named Robert Fletcher in 1645 wrote a petition to the governor of Massachusetts, or whatever they called it at the time, asking his taxes to be lowered. He said, Mr. Fletcher did, that the badness and wetness of the fields where he toiled was such that he couldn't produce a good crop no matter how hard he tried. That's poignant. And Friday, November 23rd, yes, it's shopping day. Be careful, folks, as you're reaching up to grab that 86-inch widescreen off the Walmart shelf. And that's all from me. Back to y'all. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for that and more. This week, Mark Fisher sits down with Jim Holloway and Stephen Opper for more color on McDermott and Weatherford's credit sell-off post-third quarter results. Thanks, Karen. 
So I am here today with Stephen Opper and Jim Holloway, and we're going to do a segment again that we started last quarter, and uh, hopefully we'll continue this going forward where we discuss from the latest quarter who are some of the more volatile names um, in the in this space, uh, companies um, likely that have sold off, um, their bonds have sold off um, considerably, and uh, companies that we'd like to introduce following uh, their results. So this quarter, we're going to talk about um, two related to the energy space, Weatherford International and uh, McDermott. Weatherford, after they had reported um, they actually prior to them uh, reporting, but while other companies in the space uh, had, had reported, such as Schlum, uh, Schlumberger, their uh, bonds, uh, nine and seven eighths of 2024, uh, were trading around uh, 94 on October 22nd. Company reported on uh, October 29th. Um, and uh, prior to that, what these bonds were indicated around 84, and then recently they were uh, indicated at 64. McDermott um, has a 10 and 5 eighths note of uh, 2024. They were at par prior to the company reporting on uh, on the 30th, on October 30th, and uh, recently have been indicated at uh, 83. So if we could jump right into that, uh, Jim, um, if you could tell us a little about uh, Weatherford, about uh, the background of the company. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Mark. Um, well, Weatherford can be a little baffling. Um, it's headquartered in Sweden, in Switzerland, excuse me, and domiciled in Ireland, but it was actually founded in Texas in 1941 in a town called Weatherford, which is west of Fort Worth. And uh, Weatherford, the town, is probably better known for being the hometown of Mary Martin, the mother of Larry Hagman, who played J.R. Ewing on the old TV show Dallas. Um, at any rate, Weatherford, the company, in its current incarnation, is largely the creation of Bernard de Roque Donaire, who, um, I guess sort of like J.R., is oil field royalty, um, he being the son of the former head of exploration at Total, the French oil company, who um, engaged in quite a bit of daring-do in the Middle East after World War II. Well, anyways, in 1998, Bernard, who I think also went to the Wharton Business School, headed an oil field services company called EVI, which um, acquired or merged with, with Weatherford, after which um, Bernard went on something of a shopping spree, something that he was also known for at EVI. Um, eventually, the company grew to about 14 different business lines, each composed of a lot of different companies and offerings in 90, company, in, in 90 countries or so. Now, growing this rapidly, there were, of course, inevitable questions about integration and internal controls. They were charged with violation of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in 2013. Um, but a bigger thing was this. Um, part of Bernard's strategy was to seek to reduce the company's effective tax rate. So hence, he moved the corporation from the United States to Bermuda, then Switzerland, and then to Ireland, seeking the lowest possible tax rate. Um, although the operational headquarters is still mostly in Houston. Um, this resulted in him advertising or discussing effective tax rates during earnings calls and the like that the company was not able to achieve, so some of the accounting staff took it into their hands to reverse entries that allowed them to make the numbers that Bernard had, uh, had, had set before the investment community 
Um, the SEC um, brought charge. Uh, th this resulted in eventual restatements, um, settlements with SEC, so on and so forth. So as this was happening, then we were, of course, struck by the downturn in the oil markets. And during the downturn, the company was was hit pretty hard. Um, they ended up cutting about 60% of the workforce, as uh, the Houston Chronicle reported. And uh, Daroque Donier himself departed in late 2016. Um, into this, uh, into this, uh, with the mandate to uh, unscramble the egg, I guess it were, was Mark McCollum, a highly regarded oil field uh, oil company executive, graduate of Rice University here in Houston, and formerly the CFO at Halliburton. Now, Weatherford does have some strong businesses, uh, artificial lift, some of their cementing lines, um, their tools are also have a good reputation. And, um, you know, McCollum at his first conference call as CEO uh, described it like this, quote, I see Weatherford as a classic turnaround story. We have to integrate the businesses, drive policy standardization and process discipline, improve execution, drive out cost and realize greater revenue opportunity. It's going to be a lot of work, end quote. Um, and he was right, uh, I guess. Uh, he set a pretty high bar, a goal of $300 million in cost savings through realignment of business lines into a smaller number of groups, simpler geographic structure, a lot of the basic sort of integration type things. Um, and he also made the balance sheet a big priority. He said on that May call that the uh, over-levered balance sheet and the lack of cash generation had been a real weight around the company's neck. And he went as so far as to say at the time that the company didn't have until 2020 to get the debt below $3 billion. Um, like I said, that was back in the spring of 2017. Um, the debt, the overall debt is around $7.3 billion. So with all that optimism and the company's plans, what precipitated the move downward after they reported? Uh, well, the issue in the third quarter, as it had been in, in quarters previous to that, was has been the uh, lack of cash generation and I think a growing investor frustration that McCollum has not delivered more or at least more consistency since he started 18 months ago, even while realizing he has a very difficult job. I mean, some um, you know research notes you'll see note the fact that turnarounds take time and so forth. But anyways, uh, third quarters, third quarter earnings were really not well received. Revenues fell 1% year over year, and the company itself said that they'd fallen short of the cash flow goals. They got the fourth quarter lower. And then on the call, management said they were aiming for break-even free cash flow in 2019. But to reach that level, they have to generate more than a billion in EBITDA. Um, of course... Uh, the whole cap stack crumbled and the shares crumbled. And this did happen in the context of a generally poor market for energy related debt as everybody, as the companies out there kind of grapple with the overall shift higher in the rate structure. But there were really some fundamental drivers and, invest and investor worries with Weatherford. Great. Thanks. Thanks for that, Jim. Um, so who are some of the larger players uh, in involved that we know of? Well, the most significant at this point is Q Investments, which is based in Fort Worth, not far from the Weatherford from which uh, Weatherford took its name. Um, they've been involved in some other situation in the oil field. Um, Jones Energy and Gulfmark come to mind, and they're active in other industries too. Um, you know, sharp bunch of people. Well, anyways, this past June, they wrote a letter to Weatherford's board arguing that McConnell and the board had not really delivered on their promises. They noted that leverage was still over 10x. Uh, the cash burn had exceeded 500 million a year over the past few fiscal years, and 
really significantly, really significantly for Q was the fact that um, six of the 10 members of the board dated from what Q called the disastrous Bernard de Roque Donner area. And I'm quoting here, it boggles the mind that control of the board has been left in the hands of the individuals who saw the businesses, who oversaw the businesses, the business during the Jerome Donner years of broken promises, end quote. Um, Q, of course, has lined up PJT and Millbank, as we've reported. They've held a couple of investor calls and now have, as we reported, a good chunk of the debt in their corner. You know, could be as much as 40%. Of course, it's a large cap stack, over $7 billion, like I said, with maturities ranging from 2019 to 2042. The trading's been active, and more of it could be going into the hands of distressed investors, so it'll be very interesting to see how this shakes out. Yeah, and I'd, and I'd add that on that capital structure, uh, it's not just the total amount that's due, it's, it's also when it comes due, too. Uh, you have debt, um, it's over 300 million actually maturing um, each of the next uh, four or five years, um, over 300 million in 2019, over 300 million in 2020, over uh, uh, close to 2 billion actually in, in 2021. So um, it's pretty daunting here, this uh, this capital structure. Um, so, so Jim, I, I really appreciate that. Um, let's uh, move on to the next one that we wanted to talk about. Um, uh, McDermott, um, headquartered in, um, in, in Houston, which also had bonds fall um, pretty significantly post their, uh, their, their Q3 report. So, Stephen, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about McDermott? Um, essentially, McDermott, the legacy company, had been pretty successful in turning around that business uh, during the last oil downturn. And the company was starting to perform pretty well. Uh, it was rolling off some of the bad projects that it had in its portfolio. And it was exercising uh, prudence in taking on new projects. Then uh, the company acquired Chicago Bridge and Iron. Um, Chicago Bridge and Iron's portfolio included uh, at the time and still includes uh, basically four problem projects uh, or focus projects, as they call them, that have really been a burden on the company. Just this past quarter in uh, the company's earnings release, McDermott uh, increased estimates for the cost on those projects by $744 million. And that's after... Um, initial revisions. Uh, there's been revisions uh, in a number of previous quarters leading up to this past quarter, and, and basically management had said previously that we think this is the last uh, revision, only to have this you know, relatively large increase in cost estimates. Uh, management has said that the projects, that, that those particular projects, weren't profitable on day one uh, when they were assigned. They were bad deals, but they've also been hit clearly by inflation in uh, the cost of the workforce and also lower productivity of that workforce. I think uh, McDermott's management indicated that the workforce on this project, on these projects has a uh, 0.2 times work productivity, meaning that for each five hours worked, they only get one hour of project completion on these projects. Uh, so they've clearly been a pretty big burden on the company. Um, and, you know, that, that directly led to essentially the, the increase on those projects and a number of other things that was uh, that were announced during earnings, including some capital raising, uh, and, uh, and the announcement of some divestitures led to um, a pretty interesting quarter for the company. Interesting to say the least. Um, I guess so interesting that after the quarter, they took um, sort of an unusual uh, step to hold a further question answer session with uh, investors the following week. Um, what did they discuss then? Yeah, so investors were obviously curious about the problem projects, whether or not you know, the company now has a good handle on the cost increases or how much 
you know, what's what's left in store for those various projects. Because as time goes on and pro- the projects become further completed, you know, theoretically there should be less risk uh, to, to upwards increases in cost estimates. But given the pace over the past few quarters, it's unclear. Um, they asked about that. They asked about the, the company uh, chose to raise preferred equity through uh, funds associated with Goldman Sachs. Uh, and many investors were interested in that decision as opposed to why they chose to uh, raise, why, why not raise debt, um, especially uh, uh, given the context of the, of the company's operations. And uh, they also they also increased uh, their LC facility at the same time. Now, the company uses the LC facility to um, basically gain new bids uh, as, as, uh, as they're looking to increase their revenue pipeline. Um, and they basically phrased the, the situation as, you know, we needed the equity investment to fund our current operations. The company needs about $500 million in, in liquidity uh, on a month-to-month basis. Uh, at the same time, the LC facility allows the company to proactively bid on projects if, they, if the market is a turnaround, which they anticipate. So there's kind of both those elements. Uh, people are also very interested in the decision to um, divest the assets uh, that, that they selected, uh, particularly given where the market is. And you know, people were very curious on whether it was a good business decision, whether they could actually obtain, uh, you know, multiples that were, uh, that would be beneficial to the company. Um, and so really, you know, a whole host of issues that the company, uh, discussed. And it was really more of a question and answer than a typical earnings, uh, type of call that you hear. Great. Um, so, so Jim, you know, what's, what's interesting is the news flow didn't end there. Uh, shortly after the company's JV partner, Kyoto, uh, had some news as well. So why don't you tell us about what, what uh, they said? Uh, yeah, there was uh, quite some interesting trading going on around the whole, the whole uh, Cameron Freeport LNG project continuum. Um, you know, in this regard, I'd like to give a shout out to a good friend and colleague, Harvard Zhang, who noticed the sell-off in MDR, and he chased it down, and it turned to be related to Chioda Corp's second quarter earnings. Uh, Chioda is uh, McDermott's JV partner on the Cameron and Freeport LNG products, along with some others. Um, And Chioda (coughs) said in its second quarter release that significantly increased costs for ongoing LNG products, and it specifically mentioned Cameron, um, were hurting it, and it warned of its potential inability to continue as a going concern. So, um, yeah, it's an ill wind that blows nobody good, I guess. <laughs> Great. Uh, so we'll see uh, what, what happens next. Um, guys, uh, Stephen, Jim, I really appreciate it. Uh, I know our listeners appreciate it, too. Thank you for giving us an overview of those uh, couple of companies. And Karen, back to you. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg podcasts on the media page. If you're not a subscriber, you can find them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Lung, and this has been The Week in Reorg.